Thanks for checking out the New Life Speakers podcast. All of our speakers are recorded live at our AA meeting held on Friday nights at 8 p.m. at the Atonement Church in Wyomissing, Pennsylvania. More information about recovery and our upcoming events can be found on our website, newlifespeakers.org. If you don't want to miss our newest upcoming speakers, don't forget to subscribe and turn on notifications. This podcast is self-supporting, so if you enjoy this podcast, please put a dollar or two into our virtual basket. You can find a link for this in the description. And if you know someone in need, please share this with them. Thank you. I'm Joe V. I'm an alcoholic. So my sobriety date is uh, April 24, 2019. Um, I came into the program like 19 years old, a little bit younger than some people. So is that? Yeah, people can hear in the back. All right, sorry guys. How close is close enough? <laughs> All right. All right. So, yeah, but I'll get into, you know, what it was like getting sober younger a little bit later in my story. I guess I'll start with uh, childhood. I grew up not far from here, like western Montgomery County. So I'm kind of local compared to some people. Um, Nice family, like mom, dad, never really wanted for anything. Um... You know, by all means, our household was like a very normal, you know, Brady Bunch household. I guess Brady Bunch wouldn't be a great example, but whatever. (laughs) Anyway, um, so growing up, like, my first addiction was definitely work. I came from a family that was like a family business family, and the values that were impressed upon me was like go to work you know work hard like from a young age I spent like days off summers like at the shop um working so you know that that was my first addiction that was like something that took me away from myself something where I could like escape um so I started that like young like so probably like eight or nine years old I started like washing trucks and you know so because of that I usually like when I went into school and stuff I never felt like I fit in which I hear like a lot of alcoholics talk about like that feeling of never fitting in um like I I had a hard time getting along with like people of my age group like I wasn't used to that I was like around a bunch of adults all the time so there's always that like lingering feeling of like not fitting in um so like drinking in my family was kind of like casual like um growing up my view of alcohol was wasn't like one of like you shouldn't do that don't ever touch that It, it was like my dad would like take us out of school like in elementary school and if we helped make wine like we got to taste it so I got like the message that alcohol wasn't like something scary it wasn't like something abnormal it was just you know not that I could do it all the time but like that was the message I got and um 
special occasions and stuff we were allowed to drink so um i wouldn't say i actually like felt the effects of alcohol until probably like 12 years old we went to we took a trip to italy and parents were divorced at this time but we went with my dad and like stepmom um and they let me drink while we were over there and i actually like felt the effects of alcohol and like that was one of those i have arrived moments like i'm i can get away from myself like i don't feel that like crippling you know for lack of a better term social anxiety like not fitting in um like this is this is it like i want to do this um so you know that went on um early on like snuck bottles like snuck uh i knew my mom's friend would always like bring over a bottle of uh scotch like Gwendolyn Levitt's every time she would come over and like this liquor cabinet was just full of them because <laughs> she kept bringing them and I realized if I took one like nobody noticed so by the age of 13 like I was hiding like a bottle under my bed and you know so like I guess I was dependent on alcohol not fully dependent but I used alcohol to escape by like 13, you know. It was a way I could, you know, just like yeah, escape. So um further into my drinking career, like probably like ninth grade, um I decided that I was gonna have like this big party and like I got with some people in the school and like I told my my mom was home during this and I told my mom I was like having some friends over and it ended up being like 50 people in our basement and like that was like my had my I had arrived moment because like everybody was paying attention to me like I was like the shit and <laughs> but it it obviously it didn't turn out well like 50 you know kids in your basement drinking like I had gotten my stepbrother who was in military school to like get us all sorts of alcohol and stuff and I'm like this is what I want to do like I want to you know drink and this is a way I'm like well accepted and you know everybody loves me like why wouldn't I want to do this um so that actually turned out bad and one of the kids like went home and told his mom that they were drinking at my house and his mom like threatened to call the cops and that was looking back like my dishonesty was like I, I told my mom oh he was the one that brought the alcohol and stuff like I always found a way to you know spin the situation that I was innocent and um my mom, for the most part, would always believe me. She was, like, kind of like a codependent personality. Like, she just refused to believe that I would do anything wrong in her eyes. You know what I mean? So that kind of fueled my addiction, like, going through uh, high school and stuff. Um, so 
pretty much my high school career was um, drinking. Like, I didn't belong to any extracurricular activities. Um, I didn't, like, do anything to be involved. Like, my social life, my, like, hobby was drinking and, like, smoking weed and, you know, all of that. Uh, I left out, like, the... I also had that aha moment with smoking weed. Um, so that was, like, another one. Um, so, yeah, like, around 8th and ninth grade, I started, like, experimenting with, you know, smoking weed. And I was like, this is, uh, so drugs and alcohol are, like, the way to escape my problems. So, sorry. Um... So going through high school, yeah, that's that was my life, uh, drinking and smoking, and you know, it like it really took a toll on like what I cared about. Like I, you know, in school I was pretty much like failing out, and you know, the people I hung around with didn't really have any like goals or aspirations, um, so. <clears throat> You know, I became one of those people, like, I assimilated to that crowd, you know what I mean? Um, And, like, senior year of high school, like, I had turned 18. Um, That was, like, when I was, like, oh, I'm free to go. Like, I can do whatever I want. And that's when it really got, uh, you know, bad for me. Like, I missed probably a whole marking period of senior year, like, drinking. And, you know, it became something I had to do every day, you know. Like, whereas before, well, before it was something every day. But it was more, like, by myself every day, like, drinking because I needed to drink. Um, So, whereas, like, before it was... I thought it was like a social lubricant kind of thing. Um, so anyway, um, by mid like senior year, um, I was introduced to uh, cocaine for the first time, and like that was for me that was another I have arrived moment. Like that was um, I can stay up drinking, I can be functional. Like, this is great. Um, So I thought, you know, I'm not going to get addicted to this stuff. Like, let's just do it every once in a while. Um, And I, like, saw the the process kind of unfold where I wanted to do it more often. I wanted to do it at less appropriate times. Um, You know, it just progressed for me. And then eventually throughout senior year I was like the end of senior year I was introduced to uh, crystal meth and from the bat I was like this is what I've been looking for like my whole life like I'm like comfortable in my own skin I like like what have I been doing this is like this is where it's at so 
And I thought the same thing with that. I was like, oh, I can control this. I'm going to do it every once in a while. This is going to help me drink because I can, you know, stay out all night. And I was working at this time. Like, I can get my work done efficiently. Like, this is, this helps me be a better version of me. Like, so this solves all my problems. Um, And throughout the, I graduated high school then. Um, throughout that summer, um, it just progressed and got worse, you know, went from, you know, the first like sign, cause I worked at our family business and, um, I showed up like in the same clothes for like five days <laughs> and, and people started to notice and my dad, uh, comes up to me and he's like what's wrong with you what's going on and I convinced him I had I convinced both my parents I had Lyme disease and this is (laughs) I'm like not looking good like I don't feel well so like we went through this whole thing where they actually got me like blood tested for Lyme disease and the doctor like takes me into a private room in the back and is like are you like hiding something from your parents because you you don't have Lyme disease and uh, (laughs) I get it if uh, you know there's like something you don't want them to know like you're like partying or something but like I have to tell them that you don't have Lyme disease (laughs) so that that happened and um, they like continued to try and figure out what was wrong with me like so, um, eventually the one guy I worked during this summer, I was like just a mess too. Like I was going out during lunch break and drinking and coming back all messed up and like on top of like using. And so actually my drinking buddy that I would go out with at lunch, I told him what I was doing cause I didn't think he would tell anybody. He like goes to my dad and tells him what's going on with me. So that was not good. I was like pissed off at it at the time. I mean, now I'm thankful he did say something like he was looking out for me and stuff, but I was so mad. (laughs) He was like crying and stuff. And he was like, I just don't want you, something bad to happen to you. Like, you don't look good. Like what you're doing is not good. So, like, then my dad starts drug testing me. So I realize that I can't stay in this job. I got to, like, do something different because I'm not stopping using. Like, this is, like, working for me. This is great. Like, I just have too high of a profile. I got to reel it back in. But whatever I'm doing, I'm not stopping using. And that, that just shows me how much this disease consumed me because that was a place like that business meant a lot to me like I was there all like I told you all my free time growing up like that was like a big part of my life and I'm like fuck that like I'll walk away from that to like keep using and like that just shows like the powerlessness of my disease and that's not something I saw in the moment, obviously, but looking back, like I can see that. Um, so anyway, yeah, that went on. He tried to, I think this is a funny story, so I'll include it. He tried to bargain with me 
and tell tell me that maybe you should just do cocaine to get off of methamphetamine. <laughs> so I took that as you can do cocaine during the week and just do methamphetamine on the weekend. And I popped hot for on a drug test for both, which obviously I wasn't even abiding by my interpretation of what he said. But <laughs> um, I'm like, well, that was from the weekend. Like, I was doing it on the weekend. And he's like, just, he was really upset. And it's sad now looking back. But, like, so... I realized I had to get out of there to continue my addiction because my spot was blown up. So I quit my job there in a, well, first I was messing it, uh, things up that were worth a lot of money. Like I had to put a radiator in a Mack truck and I forgot where all the bolts were and like put like the wrong size bolts in it and I poked holes in it. And the worst part is I forgot that I did that, so they ordered another one, and I did, like, the same exact thing again. And they're, like, $1,500 a piece. And I think I, I might have done it a third time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, after that, um, I came in on the weekend and got all my tools out, like, didn't say anything to anyone, which is just, like, how I was in addiction, like, once my spot was blown up and you know I was embarrassed or ashamed like I would just run away like I wasn't like going in and talking to anybody telling them I was quitting I just was showing up getting my stuff and not coming back so I did that um obviously I couldn't stay at my parents or my mom's house at the time she was all mad um, so I moved in with my buddy um, that was, his dad was selling, selling us drugs. So um, lived with him for a couple months, and obviously that was what you would expect it to be. Um, he had a DUI, no license. I somehow had a license and wanted you know, discounted drugs. So we like worked out a deal. Um, so I like drove him around. We both got a job at this haunted attraction place, uh, Penhurst. Um, and that was, that was a shit show. Um, they, uh, initially had me work with the public, but <laughs> the guy told me to, uh, show people where to go. And I took that as I should just scream what the sign says and point at it to every person that walks by. <laughs> and um, they, t they quickly took me out of a role that dealt with the public and had me, like, direct traffic. So I, like, worked there. Everybody that was working there was using. So you'd go in at, like, 5 o'clock and then get out, like, late at night and hang out with all those people and get high and it was no way to live I mean still living at the buddy's house um I decide I don't need to work anymore <laughs> at some point in this quit that job 
um, start running out of money, steal from my buddy. He had like a coin jar on the on his counter, and I was like just so out of my mind at this point that I thought he wouldn't notice that I took his pretzel jar of coins right off his counter, cashed it in, and used it to buy drugs off of his dad. Well, apparently he had a camera on top of the fact that it was a pretty obvious thing, so he kicked me out. Um, I moved in with my mom, told her I had stopped getting high, which obviously wasn't true. Um, so that went on for a while, living with her. Um, in the middle of all this, um, while I was working at the haunted attraction, like I started getting like vivid, um, like delusions or psychosis. Um, my first experience with this was I was working there and I go up to my buddy and I'm like, these people have been talking on like the walkie talkies about us. They're sending the police for us. Like I've heard them, like we gotta get out of here. And he looks at me, he's like, none of that, like nobody's talking on the walkie talkies. There's no police here. I'm like, shit. <laughs> um, so that inevitably got worse. I moved in with my mom and I was telling her there was like people in the trees and all this stuff. and. So that went on for a while. There was one day where I was like really whatever, didn't sleep for a while. And I uh, was with two buddies and we had convinced ourselves that my dad was like out to get my like mom. And she, I convinced, myself that she was like tied up in the attic and I needed to like get all of our stuff out and like hide in a park or something so I had this day-long psychosis that um did all sorts of crazy shit um threw knives all over Wawa's parking lot like was a complete danger to society and rightfully so um I wake up the next day um, I'm at my like drug dealer's house. My buddy calls me and he's like, I talked to your mom. Like there's police at your house. Like you got to go home and talk to these people. Like they're going to find you either way. So I go home, I walk in, um, I try to just go to the refrigerator. Like nothing happened. Like, like the day before, before, I don't want to waste too much time telling you guys about it, but I, like, ripped the TVs off the wall. I, like, you know, I told you about the knives at Wawa. Um, it was just all sorts of crazy shit. And one of, the, one of the things, I guess, is an important detail. I went to Walmart and tried to purchase a shotgun because I was going to show up at my dad's doorstep and tell him to stop what he was doing, which didn't exist. Um, and that scares me in sobriety because I don't know what I would have done if they didn't sell it to me. They said, you're too young to buy a shotgun. So I was 18, so maybe they just thought I was crazy. I don't know if that's a law or not. <laughs> but that scares me 
And I think about that as motivation to stay sober because I don't know what I'm capable of. And, you know, I could have hurt people numerous times in my addiction. And, you know, that's just a glaring example for me of like, like a God moment, like that that didn't go any further than that because I, I was fully not in control of what I was doing. So <clears throat> naturally I got 302 and that was my first experience with a, like a mental psychiatric facility. Um, and I remember thinking in there, all right, that was completely out of my control. That was terrifying. Like, I don't want to do that anymore. Um, and they probably two weeks later, like this was over Thanksgiving, they released me and I'm like getting high that same day. And like didn't even go home. My parents dropped me off. My truck was getting a windshield replaced because apparently I threw something through the windshield and they were so gracious to buy me a new windshield. <laughs> um, but I went straight and I, straight to getting high. Um, I was supposed to complete an outpatient program for that, which was my first experience with any sort of treatment. And um, I showed up to it high and they told me that I had to not drink for this program. And I thought that was the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. I'm like, that's not why I'm here. Like, and it actually, the thought of not getting high and not drinking terrified me so much that like, I didn't care what the consequences were. I was never going back there. And I argued with them all day. That place is closed. I, <laughs> I would love to give them a, an amends, but you know, it was the Malvern Institute in Pottstown, but you know, because I was disruptive to their whole program, but I was just not open to getting sober at that point. Um, so <clears throat> I went out about active addiction, and as it does, it got worse and worse, and pretty much throughout the time period. Um, this next time period, it was coming down to just like me sitting in the garage by myself doing crazy shit. Um, like it was winter time. So like I had this birdcage kerosene heater and cause I was trying to, my mom had rented a house because I had made such a scene at my stepdad's house and she wasn't going to kick me out he was going to kick me out so she rented this house um out in the middle of like perky omenville like in the middle of the cornfields and stuff so it had like this dis detached garage and um i've like posted it up in there um i had this like i was saying kerosene heater i filled it with diesel fuel um <laughs> and I took like that spray foam stuff and like tin foil and like covered all the walls. So, and I would just like hermit up in there, um, which is like really sad looking back and just really depressing. Um, but like the walls were black and stuff and it was just 
not an extremely healthy thing. Um, so, I don't know, not much came from that time period. It was just like my addiction progressed and it got worse and worse and I wasn't working and I would manipulate my mom into giving me her credit card for food and I would buy hundreds of dollars of Wawa gift cards and buy drugs with them because I wasn't working. Um, which for me, like somebody that grew up being self-sufficient, working, like doing everything is like, it just shows where it took me. Cause I wasn't ever one of those people that wasn't going to like wake up and go to work. Like, but I was stealing, I was, you know, manipulating and I don't really, I really don't know what I like looking back. I don't know what I did all day, <laughs> but you know, so then came um, April of 20, well, like early April of 2019 before my sobriety date. I was out of money. I was, throughout this time, I mean, I was selling things that were my family's to get money to get high. Um, like, for example, I sold my. Uh, stepdad's Dyson vacuum and then pretended like I didn't know where it went. I stole, sold my dad's like Schwinn collection of like classic bicycles and stuff and just all sorts of stuff. Um, but we had this pole barn out behind like our family business and had a bunch of like stuff in there and obviously they had locked me out because I was taking stuff out of there and selling it. And I was, like, really pissed about it. So, um, I, uh, dumped a bunch of gasoline at the back door, lit it on fire, and one of the employees came out and tried to put it out, like, burn his arm and stuff. It was not good. Um, I go to, long story short, I go to jail, um, first time in jail uh it was over easter weekend so i had to like sit in a holding cell and it was just i was still high so it was all like rammy it was not a good experience um and they tell me like i get this like virtual court hearing and the guy says like two hundred thousand dollar bail and i just like like it just hit me at that point i'm like holy shit <laughs> this is this is serious and it's like they wanted to charge me with arson intent to something in an unoccupied building like this whole list of charges and <clears throat> that scared the shit out of me I'm like that just happened <laughs> like um so and I knew I had like not much control over my thinking and what I was doing so like I don't know. So anyway, I'm in I'm in jail. Da, 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 um, which those people were like really nice to me. Like I'm like all a mess, and they gave me like they made me their little like chip bag of uh, food that I thought tasted gross, but I ate it anyway because I was hungry. Like their mix of whatever. <laughs> and um, anyway, um, end up going to well go. 
go see a judge. They tell me I'm going to Karen. Um, so, well, they told me you can stay in jail or you can go to Karen. I'm like, and they, they said originally for like a consultation. So anyway, go home that night. Um, look for drugs in that because they sent me home for some reason. Look for drugs in the house. Apparently they have cleared it all out. I just end up like drinking that whole night. Um, and, um, yeah, anyway, get up, go to rehab. They put me in the YAMP program. Um, Chris was there. <laughs> um, didn't know what to make of sobriety. Had no idea what was going on or like what this was. Didn't think I was actually going to stay at rehab. Um, so anyway, learned a little bit about sobriety there. Not really sure that it's something I want to do. Um, but they asked me if I want to stay, and I still have these legal charges that are unresolved. And I stay for phase two, and I this is my first exposure to, like, AA and stuff. So start taking us to meetings and, you know, start meeting people in the program and I'm hearing people that have, like, some time sober and, like, their experience is similar to mine. And, you know, so I get some exposure to AA. Um, that goes on. End up, uh, they recommend me for, like, sober living. So uh, I go to this place in Moton called Transitions, which I thought was going to be, like, is cushy as uh being at karen and it was not <laughs> so i get there and the basis of this program is to work a recovery program um so that's essentially what i did is went to meetings during the week got a sponsor started connecting with guys and started feeling better you know what i mean and I still wasn't sure if this sobriety thing was for me, but I was going to give it a go, like, give it a try. And um, <clears throat> so my legal stuff got resolved, and that was, like, a turning point in my sobriety because I feel like before then I was motivated by that, and I had to decide whether this was something I was going to continue to do or not. And... At this point, I had started working the steps. I had a sponsor. I had a home group. Um, I had a, like some simple service positions in my home group, like cleaning up the coffee pots and stuff. I had gotten to know those guys. Um, my first home group was Fleetwood, um, and there was like a lot of good sobriety in that meeting. Um, so I'm like, you know what? Like, this is working for me like why am I gonna what do I have to really go back to at this point like the way I was living before was getting worse and worse and worse but like I struggle with the thought of oh I'm 19 what am I gonna do when I turn 21 like I'm never gonna be able to like legally drink like maybe this isn't for me like what should I do? So I just, you know, continue with the program. Um, COVID hit. 
I'm still in the recovery house. And this was another like turning point in my sobriety because I was forced to be around. So we went into like a housewide quarantine and I was forced to be around sober people and interact like 24 hours a day. <laughs> I thought it was awful at the time, but like being somebody that didn't really, you know, put myself out there and like make connections with people with, with like other sober people like that was like a shift for me you know and I got connected really connected with those guys like we still are pretty close um a lot of those guys I'm going on like vacation with next week and you know Alex is one of those guys and I've just stayed close with a lot of them and you know that's the fellowship is a big part of my sobriety like having people to call and run stuff by um having people to get support from having like a group of friends that has like a similar you know goal in mind like we're all trying to get sober we're all trying to you know be better people um has helped me a lot so just wanted to highlight that um so my experience with like a higher power um i had a lot of like prejudice towards like you know god and the church and everything because um growing up catholic i just saw it as like this you do this and it'll make god happy and there's no like rhyme or reason behind it you just like repeat these prayers and stuff like I had no concept of what it meant to have like a relationship with a higher power and you know working with my sponsor like actively being willing to take direction and practice some different things like I was able to get by some of that and be open to just AA's my higher power you know like these people are all staying sober and you know when I take their direction my life gets better so AA's my higher power for now and I ran with that for a while um, so you know it's since grown from there um, but that really worked for me in the beginning so I wanted to share that um, and guess I'll talk about some of my experience with the steps um fourth step was you know I've done two at this point and I could probably do another one um but <laughs> I know my first four step like I did the best I could for that time um and I got a lot I worked through a lot like I had resentments towards my dad from my parents getting divorced and everything and that was like a huge one for me and I carried that throughout years and years and just like treated my dad and stepmom just not kindly and not lovingly and acceptingly <clears throat> and through making amends with my dad like I have a relationship with him today I have a relationship with his wife um so that was like just one of those miraculous you know changes um, but anyway, the fourth step, like, helped me see, fourth and fifth, like, going over it with my sponsor helped me see, you know, 
all right, I'm not the victim. The world's not out to get me. Because I had that attitude throughout my life. Like, the rules don't apply to me. All these rules are stacked up against me to, like, help me fail or whatever. Um, And, like, seeing some of my conduct laid out and just seeing my part and everything, like, really helped me see, oh, man, like, that's, that's not the way it is. And, like, my sponsor relating to me and saying, like, oh, yeah, like, I felt that way, too, or I, you know, thought that way, too, you know sharing some of his experience was beneficial and like six and seven for me is like a like daily thing like I don't think I've fully gotten rid of my character defects but I know when they're there at this point and um like I know when I'm doing them and it's like a conscious effort every day to like do something different um so and I talked a little bit about, like, the amends process. And, um, and yeah, like, for 10, 11, and 12, when I was in Transition's house, they had us do this, like, write out your conduct for the day and, like, do, like, a written 10-step. So we have, like, a group of guys that does, like, a text chain of 10-steps. Uh, and... I don't always do them, but it's really helpful when I do them. Um, I don't not always do them either. So, <laughs> but taking daily inventory and taking spot inventory of when I'm doing something in the moment that I can turn around, like I'm treating somebody the way they don't deserve to be treated, or I'm like doing something harmful, and I can catch myself right there sometimes I can't I gotta wait for the end of the day but if I can catch myself there and make it right in the moment like I have less to clean up so you know and spiritually you know just keep being open to something new and it's ever changing for me so you know I feel connected to my higher power when I'm you know, doing something of service, you know, doing something good for my recovery, anything like that. Um, so, and I've sponsored two guys so far. One of them's here. Um, and that's been a whole experience for me, just going back through the book and, like, hearing things. And that's why I love big book meetings is, like, I didn't hear all this stuff in the book the first time I read it. Like, I don't know if they add something every time I read read through it, and I've heard people say that, but, you know, it's just, and it's a gift to help somebody else, too, and, like, to do something that's not selfish, because everything I did in my addiction was about me. It was selfish, and, you know, to change that and get out of myself. And I find when I'm, you know, talking to somebody, working with somebody, or doing any sort of service, like, I forget about all the stupid stuff I tend to worry about. So, I don't know. I guess you guys want to open it up to... Yeah. Yeah?
Thanks for checking out this episode of the New Life Speakers Podcast. Please remember that our group is self-supporting through its seven tradition. Donations can be made by clicking the link on our website, newlifespeakers.org. You can also find a link for this in the description below. Tune in next week for a new speaker, and thanks for listening.